is that cruel before lunch? We're beginning a brand new series. Um, we'll go all the way up until Christmas, uh, except for next week. But it's a, a series called Steak and Potatoes. I did not add Texas toast. By the way, you should try that. It's awesome. My wife and I had a fun making that uh, you know, sermon intro video. It was even better enjoying this meal. I'm telling you, it was awesome. And so I purposely did not open the steak because I would cause a church split in three different ways for all the rare, medium, and well, and everybody has strong opinions on those things. Only one of you is right. I'm just telling you. And please, please, um, no emails from any vegans out there, okay? Um, you know, if you want to be a vegan, go ahead. Uh, this, this is not what it is. Uh, we're we're going to study the book of Romans, look at some, some major themes in this powerful book. It is, it is being referred to as the greatest book of theology in human history. And, and the theology, if you're new to Bible study, is the study of God. And we're going to look at his truth, his gospel, his grace. Really, that, that's the, the study of theology and uh, it is steak and potatoes. It is like a spiritual protein. It is like the substance. It's, it's, it's something that we all need. Now, I enjoy a lot of variety of different, different lessons. I, I, I think the, great, the most fun series was a series through Proverbs called Stupid Should Hurt. Just completely ripped off that title from Pastor Kevin, and I have no shame in it. Um, but it, th those, are type, those are fun type of series. I, I love marriage. I love all different but uh, this series gets right to the heart of the matter. This is foundational. This is very, very important. And we have too many anemic or anorexic uh, believers and churches in America. So that's we're going to go through this. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. He was a Jew but also a Roman citizen. And he was writing to... German, I mean German, no, not German Jews, Roman Jews, Gentile Jews, uh, uh, Gentiles uh, in the Roman Empire, and this gathering of believers, we don't know how large, but it was a gathering of believers in Rome that during uh, you know, the, the trek to Jerusalem at Pentecost where the, where the Holy Spirit came after the resurrection of Christ and the gospel was preached and they went back and they started this gathering of believers in the city of Rome. Now, Paul had yet to come and visit Rome. He wanted to, he had longings to, he craved to go, but he sent this letter that preceded his presence and also preceded his death. Because when Paul finally got to Rome, he was a prisoner and ended up dying a martyr's death in the city of Rome. When we were there um, on our sabbatical, we, we walked right past the prison that, Ro that Rome kept Paul in, and you just turned your head just a little bit, bam, there is the Roman Colosseum. It was right in the heart of the city. It is absolutely incredible. So Romans chapter 1, just give you a flavor of the theme, verse 1, Paul, who's writing, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets of the Holy Scriptures, meaning he predicted it in the Old Testament, verse 3, regarding his son. 
who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was, was appointed the Son of God in power, by what? By his resurrection from the dead. Who is he talking about? Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, through Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to call all Gentiles to, obe to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the next section that was writing, that Paul wrote about talked about, I want to be there. I want to come visit you. Can't wait to come. And I'm so excited to share this gospel to, to Gentiles. And then also... He gives, and that's the theme of Romans is the gospel. He also gives his passion to do so and again brings up the theme of this letter in verse 15. He says, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So Paul's passion for not only writing this letter, but his desire to come to Rome is very, very evident. And the gospel, the theme of Romans, that it's the power of God, not of a pastor, not of a person, not of an individual, it's the power of God to save, that means to rescue from punishment, rescue from damnation, to save anyone who believes. He goes, I can't wait to get there. So that's the, the kind of the preamble, kind of the just warming up the audience who is watching this. And then Paul gives the first of many yet to come, good news, bad news. I got good news to share and bad news. So right out of the gate, he says, I got some good news. In verse 17, I have it here if you don't have it. He says, for in the gospel, which means good news, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by or comes from what? Faith. It's faith in Jesus. This righteousness means being in right standing with a holy, righteous God. And that comes through faith in Jesus. But he says in the Greek that it's, this righteousness is being revealed. Now in English with ED, it's like, oh, past tense, it was revealed. But in the Greek language, it's very descriptive. It's, it means that is still constantly being revealed. It was revealed in the first century. It is still being revealed even to this very moment. That's the power of the gospel, that those who receive it by faith in Jesus have right standing with God. You don't get right standing with God by coming to church, but I'm glad you're here. You don't get right standing with God by being a good person. We'll talk about that in part two of this series. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. On the heels, hard, hard right turn. The bad news, verse 18. The wrath of God, that's a contrast. The wrath of God is being revealed continually even to this day from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. 
And what do they do? Who suppress the truth, the truth of God, by their own wickedness. I mean, that, that's like, like good news, bad news punch. Right out of the gates. So he, do, he starts with a little flowery, welcome, 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 bam, bam. There it is. And that's the way Paul writes. And I love how he describes things along the way. So if you're taking notes, today's central point is this. Before a cure is discussed, the disease must be addressed directly. Not timidly, not vaguely, not nuanced, very direct. Now, if you have a good doctor who does tests on you, going for testing, and he finds out that you have a serious issue, he doesn't bring you in the office and office and, and immediately says, okay, what we need to do is we need to go into surgery and I need to cut into you and take things out. If he starts with that, you're going, I don't want to go into surgery. I don't want you cutting anything and just leave everything where it is. He's going about it backwards. But if he would call you at office and said, I want to let you know, based on test results, you have cancer. And it is serious. He said, all of a sudden, the attitude changes in the office. He's addressing it directly. That MRI just came up. You have a mass, a tumor. We don't know what it is, but we got to go in. Now, your whole perspective changes. Like, when can we get in? Sign me up. Yeah, you have fear, trepidation. Immediately, your prayer life is like way better. Okay? And that's what Paul is doing. He doesn't flower this book up. Because this that's mistake and potatoes. Man, we're going to get right to the heart of the matter. He says, we have a problem. We have a problem. It must be addressed. Now, Rome, the city of Rome, was the epicenter of the Roman Empire. Right? That was his capital city. But the epicenter of the Roman Empire that was the part of the biggest influence then and still is today was the Roman law. Okay, now this is a, a, a you know, kind of gathering a bunch of what those buildings used to look like in the first century. Now, when we were there, you see, you see this, they're not all right. They're kind of put all together, bunched together. They're spread out in the center of the Rome, was called the Forum. And, and then the Colosseum's right here. And you have these different uh, buildings. A lot of them still have pillars still standing. So a few have, you know, a little bit part of the roof. But this, these were real, a real hub of the epicenter of the Roman Empire. And there was a lot about the law, the Roman law. The Roman law is the basis of civil law even to this day. Any country that has a, a healthy you know, law and order makeup in their government, the basis of it is the Roman law. And the Roman law was revolutionary. Now, let me show you some basic principles of the Roman law. See if you recognize any of these. Equal treatment under the law. That was brand new in, 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 in the Rome, when Rome started this. That was foreign to the world. Innocent until proven guilty. Revolutionary. Burden of proof is on the accuser. Now, when this gets flipped and stops changing, the foundation of law and order goes away. Are we seeing the, 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 the cracks in this now? Many people would say yes. 
This all comes from the Roman law. So what Paul is doing in this letter is he's leveraging what was very prevalent in their culture. They understood it was that he is going to bring issues and say you, you are guilty according to God's law. And God is not a respecter of person. Doesn't matter your title. Doesn't matter who you are, who you are related to. So Paul is leveraging some basics of Roman law in delivering this letter called Romans, called Romans. So civil law, civil law is laws of like, you can't do that to that person. You can't do that with this person. You can't do that. You're breaking civil law. So the cure it's not discussed. That comes in part three, hang with me, in this series. But the disease is being addressed directly in chapter one. It's really, here's the ugly truth. If you're taking notes, here's the ugly truth in chapter one. Mankind has rejected God and his moral laws. Mankind has rejected God and God's moral laws. That's the ugly truth. Now, before Paul proves their guilt, mankind's guilt, and it's not only for them, even us today, before the, the examples are given, the evidence is given of, of breaking God's moral law, Paul gives, before he does that, he gives the reason why. And the reason why is so important of how did that culture get there? How did our culture today get where we are today? What are the reasons? And I love this about Paul's writings. He gives the reason, not just the problem. So we find in verse 18. So we back up verse 18. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their own wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them or mankind. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, here they are, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. Just, just look at what was been created, right? Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There is a God, and his evidence is everywhere if you have eyes to see. Men are without excuse. People are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, like, yes, there is a God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. I think verse 22 is the American verse of our day. Proclaiming to be wise, but they have become fools. Now, here's the why. What has caused this depravity into wickedness? So I'm going to break this apart. It's found in verse 21. First of all, and this is where it all starts, even today, their thinking became futile. Their thinking See, once, once we start thinking wrong, we go down a wrong path that leads to destruction. That's where it starts. That's why there's a battle for minds today. 
battle for children's minds, teenagers' minds, young adults' minds, so that thinking can change. The word futile means empty, worthless, but in the Greek it also means vanity. That their thinking, they began puffed up in their own minds about who they are and how smart they were. That's why professing themselves, we are wise, when in fact they became fools. And it started with twisted thinking. So in this culture, it's a, really a pagan culture, even though you know, they said Caesar's God, it doesn't mean they don't worship things. A pagan culture means a life and choices without God. Christians can act like a pagan, even though they trusted in Christ. And where they drift away from God starts right here. That's why later it says you got to renew our minds all the time. There's a battle for our minds all the time. So that's the first step. Then it says in the same verse, their foolish hearts were darkened. Starts with our thinking, puffing ourselves up. I don't need God. I got this. I can handle it. I'm right. I don't believe this anymore because I'm so smart, I figured it out. Then the next step is foolish hearts become darkened. You see, God is light. So one of, his, one of the attributes of God, the descriptions of the nature of God, God is light. And you start walking away from the light, whether as an individual or a family or a culture, you start walking away from light, you head into Darkness. And the more you head into darkness, you can get to the point where you can't find your way out of it. And when you can't find your way out of something, you are lost. God and his truth brings light to our minds, to our hearts, and to our choices. But we reject God and all that goes with God, we will proceed, because we're starting to think different, down a path that will lead to foolish behavior. And the more darker we walk into, the more foolish we become. It's a vicious cycle of stupidity, of darkness and foolishness and darkness and foolishness. But the whole time we're thinking, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm, I'm right. Where our mind has drifted and our hearts are now darkened. This is the ugly truth. That Paul's addressing the descent into darkness just leads us to depravity. That is the natural inclination of the human heart is to go away from God, we get into darkness, and we descend into depravity. We are depraved from all good things. So the second thing that they rejected, not only mankind has rejected God and his moral law, mankind then and today is rejecting righteousness and they have embraced wickedness. I don't want to be told that this is right from God and the opposite is wrong. Right living. No, no, no. I determine how I live. I determine my choices. I don't want anybody, including you, God, to tell me what is right living. And that's what we're seeing today. And then with that, there's absolute the embrace of wickedness. So that's the ugly truth that Paul is dealing with directly to saying, you have broken 
God's moral laws and God's wrath is coming. It's going to be coming. There is a price to be paid. There is a cause and effect. God is serious about this. You've broken God's moral law. Now, we have seen in the last 20 years or so a rise in atheism and agnosticism. Atheism is there is no God. And agnosticism is I don't know if there's a God. I grew up believing that there's a God. You know, I just don't know anymore. That is agnosticism. Now, if you have a family member, you have a, a distant relative, you have a good friend, you have a coworker that's in either one of these camps, how do you have conversations about is there a God or is there not a God? Now, the first, first approach that many believers have is I don't think as, as effective. Now, please listen carefully or I'll get some upset emails because you hear part of the truth, all right? The first natural idea is like, well, I'll just share the word of God with them, okay? I'm not saying you shouldn't share the God with them, but I don't think the first thing you share is the word of God. Why? Because if they don't believe in God, they don't give, these words mean nothing. And as I've been researching the last several months in preparation for Romans and Paul's using the thinking of that Roman culture to emphasize truth, I've been listening to a lot of apologetics of how do you have conversations in, in like all these universities today in our culture is there is no God. He says the best, most effective approach that should happen first is called the moral argument. The moral argument. There's two premises. Here's the first premise of the moral argument. Premise number one is there are those who believe, you know, if there's no God, then there are no objective moral values or moral truth. Okay, there's no God. And what happens is if there's no objective moral values or moral truth, then everything is either culturally or situationally, you know, relevant. I mean, who can say what is wrong these days? And they're like, no one. Do what you do. Do you be you, be you and you choose this, whatever. Because you can't, you can't say something's right, something's wrong. That's the one side of that coin is that there is no God. There's no objective moral truth, moral values, moral laws. The second part of that is that if there is a God, he is the anchor point for objective truth, morals, and values. He, if there is a God, God outranks human beings. He's greater, he's smarter, he's wiser, he's not like us. The Bible calls that holy. He's separate from us. And if there is a God that he determines because he's the anchor you know, bearer, the anchor point of moral values and gods, that there is someone greater than us making decisions about morality, about behavior, about activity. Now, if there is a God, there's a question that you cannot hide from. The question is about this behavior, about this choice, about this belief, what does God think about it? Okay, you're, you're, you're calling out to a higher authority. What does God think of this? 
And if there is a God and he says that I condemn this, I do not condone this, I, I, you know, command you not to do this, whatever it is, if there's a God, that's his prerogative. That's his right. And if there is a God and I don't want to do it, I'm like shaking my little puny little fist, saying, no, I don't want to. Okay, but he's God. And if God says, thou shall not drink coffee, some of you, many of you are in a moral crisis. Okay, or thou shall not drink Mountain Dew. Like, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't think there's a God. Why? Because I want to drink coffee or Mountain Dew. But if God would decrease something and command something, if there is a God, that's his right. That is his prerogative to do that. I mean, this whole principle is everywhere, everywhere in our culture, whether it's parenting, whether it's a business owner. This is what I want to sell. That's your prerogative. We'll find out if it actually sells. But you, why? You're the owner. You're in, that, that principle is everywhere. So if there is a God and he says, I'm going to give a moral truth, moral law, and I say that there are, these are my parameters with sexuality. And God says, within the context and only in the context of sexual behavior is between within a heterosexual married relationship, if God sets those boundaries, that's his prerogative. That is his right. That is not up for us to debate whether it's true or not, if there's a God. And anything outside of his boundaries is morally wrong every time. I'm trying to be very clear because this is not being taught much in our culture today, even in churches, even in churches. So that's God's plan. Anything outside of that, you're in conflict and defiance against the moral law giver. Now, the truth of the matter is that the last several generations have grown up really with this belief now, they may say there's a God, but, you know, I don't want him involved in my life. But the truth that the last several generations believe have been taught, have, have been influenced, that there is no objective moral truth, moral values, moral laws. That is why the last several generations, this is not a put down, I'm just trying to give context of what they've been wrestling with, what they have been taught and now believe and that's why so many people today are scared to death to impose their values on anybody. Because that's what they have been trained. Like, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. So while many believe in moral relativism, everything's relevant, depends on the situation, depends on whatever, you know, your truth is just not my truth. But in practice, in reality, they're not living up to this completely. 
because there's so many people in our culture, not just the last two generations, it's, it's all permeated all throughout. In practice, they believe it is um, objectively right to not push your values on anybody. At the same time, they believe that it is objectively wrong to put your values on anybody. They want their cake and eat it too. You can't have both. But in reality, in our culture, we are like, you know, you can't not push your values on anybody else. But they're saying that's wrong. But wait a second. There's no one who can say that. So therefore, the values of tolerance, open-mindedness, love and acceptance of anybody doing anything they want to do is living on steroids today. It's everywhere we turn. And there is this strong reaction that you can't say that's wrong. My response is, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to be offensive today. I'm being the messenger, back in my King James version, the herald of God's word today. And I believe that there is a God that created the universe and created every one of us and everything on this earth and that his fingerprints are everywhere in the universe and on this planet and his objective truth is real and his objective moral values are real and when we follow them, we actually, life goes much better for us human beings because of God's love and God's, I believe that there is a God who actually loves us and gives us boundaries because he loves us. That's what I believe. And that's, that's, that's what I practice, and so that's why I'm teaching today. I'm not adding truth. This is Barry's truth. No, this is straight from Romans chapter 1. So Paul's first issue, right out of the gate, hello, I'm Paul, this is why I'm writing, can't wait to be there. Bam, I got good news and bad news. But the first issue that he is hitting head on is the ugly truth that mankind, not only then but even today, has rejected God and his moral laws, and mankind has also rejected right living, righteousness, and embraced wickedness. That's right out of the gate, right out of the gate. And God, as we'll see through this, through this book, God is treating everyone equally. God is not a respecter of persons. Equal justice under his moral laws. And Paul, before he gives evidences and proof he shares the why. Started with thinking, and then foolish hearts become darkened. Before I get into the examples in Romans chapter 1, verse 22, to the end of the chapter, what I'm going to read and give some commentary on was very evident in the Roman Empire then. And what I'm going to read give some commentary on is incredibly evident everywhere in our culture today. America, Romans chapter one, it fits hand in glove. Now what I'm going to read and this whole, actually this whole message 
to, to many in our culture is not preaching, it's actually hate speech. That's what many would say today. And if I were doing the same series and saying what I'm saying today with Romans chapter 1, if I would do the same thing in Canada, I could be arrested because it's against the law to say what God's word says about these issues. Okay, so they're very relevant, very, very relevant. So let me read through as Paul then gives the, the problem and the cause, but now here's the examples. Verse 24. Because of all this, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for lies, not just the nature of God, it's God's moral laws. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. You hear that several times? God let them. God is a God that gives us free will for our good and for our destruction. He let them, gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men who abandon natural relations with women in the context of sexuality were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Pause right there. There is new teaching today, really shown up in the last 10 years, about those verses from Romans chapter 1. And the new teaching is, and there's books out, well, that's not what it really means. What it really means is that if there's a, in a loving relationship, that's acceptable. But where it's wrong is if it's forced on someone, a sexual relationship of the same sex. It's forced on someone. And I would declare, this reminds me of Romans 1.18, teaching when there's wickedness, they're suppressing the truth for their wickedness. The God of the Old Testament, when it came to sexuality and how he described what was out of bounds, this is right in line with that. God does not change. His word doesn't change. Now, you've got to understand the application. The Moses law is different than the moral law in the Old Testament. But Morally, sexually, in Romans chapter 1, God hasn't changed. But many Christians, they just want to camp on those verses and pound away, which I think is foolish. Because Paul's like, oh, no, 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 I'm not done yet. There's other things. Other things. Verse 28. Furthermore, here's my, I got more of a list. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, I don't believe that anymore, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, every kind of evil, every kind of greed, every kind of depravity. Paul's trying to make sure he paints a big enough picture. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. That sounds like online social media. 
They are gossips and slanderers and God-haters and insolent, which means disrespectful and rude, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding. They have no fidelity or faithfulness to commitments. They have no love, no mercy. Although they know, they know God's righteous decree, meaning his moral values, that those who do such things deserve death. And they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The darkness of depravity is alive and well in the USA. It's been there for a while, but it's on steroids today. It's always been there, but it's very much allowed, allowed to, allowed, visible today. Our culture is saturated in wickedness, inventing ways to do evil and against God's moral law. We see this mindset, this teaching, we see it all the time in, saturated in, our, in the movie industry. It's like my wife and I are going less and less movies because it's like more and more bad stuff, all right? We see it saturated in our movie industry. We see it saturated in our music industry. Please, I'm not saying every movie, every song, but it is saturated. It is saturated in online platforms. It is saturated in our education system of what we're trying to teach. This is now okay. It's saturated even in our political system of now we're going to make these laws that it's okay to do these things. And it's a, it's a law to then if you condemn it, then you can go to jail. It's also, it's saturated in many, many churches today. That all that, we, that Rome, uh, Romans 1 talks about, no, 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 we just, we just love and accept everybody. Now listen, everybody that comes through these doors are loved and accepted. We're glad that people are here. But that doesn't mean we approve of every choice. Okay, that's just, that's just common. We've, we've had, pastors and I have had conversations with people in certain lifestyles. We said, you, yes, of course you're welcomed here. But this is what we teach. This is why we teach it. And this is, we teach truth with grace. That's what our aim is. But we don't compromise the truth like many people, many churches are doing today. So the last point for your notes is that we have a culture today that accepts, encourages, and celebrates wickedness. It's, it's been here since the founding of our country. But I feel so burdened for our teenagers and our children because it's always been there, but now it's, you have to accept it, you have to encourage others, and you best celebrate it. Or now you are morally depraved, if you say what God believes about it. Now that's, that's the ugly truth. That's no fun to teach, but I have to teach it. Because I'm just the herald. Thus saith the Lord. But here, here's the good thing though. Even in chapter one, as ugly as it gets, the gospel and grace are still there. Back to verse 16. But it's the power of God that brings salvation. Not only a saving faith to spiritually become saved, but the power of God still brings Christians who have rejected God and walked away from the light into darkness, into depravity. It's the power of God that can bring them back to safety. 
okay? Not parents preaching every time you see your child. No, okay, share your heart. It's the power of God. We don't have power. And the gospel is still being revealed. The good news is still being revealed. I wrote this in my notes, that grace is still found in spite of the ugly truth. But here's the thing, good news is good news because it's contrasted with bad news. And I wrote this late last night, added to my notes, sinful darkness can still be overcome by the glorious light of God's gospel and his grace. It can be overcome. And that's how we should approach the people that in our life that we love and care, but they are, are involved in some of these things. That's the ugly truth. Next week, it's the uncomfortable truth. Some of you are like, how do you get uncomfortable even more? Because some believers going, I'm off the hook. I'm not like those people. Part two, the uncomfortable truth. Let's pray with me. Lord, thank you for Paul. Thank you for how you gifted him to write about your theology in ways that um, he breaks it down and gives reasons why and gives the cure, gives, talks directly about the disease. Thank you, God, that what you wrote in the first century is still relevant in this century because that's the power of God and his word. Lord, help us as we walk through this at times heavy book that you, your grace would still be evident and your power still effective of reaching into darkness and rescuing those back to the light. I pray for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.